6, verses 1 through 21. All slaves should show full respect for their master so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires. They plunge yourselves, themselves into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. Teaching those who are rich in this world, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works, 
and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Center Church. Um, before we begin, just a quick correction on our creed that we confessed this morning. Uh, there was a typo on our slide that says, uh, when we confess, he was truly born both of God and of the Virgin. He truly took a body, for the Word became flesh and dwelt among us without sin. Congregation was supposed to, he was God. Now, he was a God. Um, just as we just read, right? I mean, he was, and we believe he was the only God. Amen? Yeah, that's what we believe, right? That's what we believe. So just want to make sure we all are on the same page. We're not believing he was just a God, but the only God there is. Um, We're glad you could join us this morning. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. We're a church that often makes mistakes, but also wants to correct them and to grow together as body of Christ. And that's what we see in 1 Timothy, the sermon series that we're in today, as we're finishing up. Um, this great letter Paul writes to Timothy, uh, we're at the end of the letter, and um, he writes to Timothy, his young pastor in Ephesus, and thus far we have looked at uh, basically who, what, or why of the church. And I hope by now you're all convinced, not by my words, but by the word of God, to love God's church. Amen? Amen. All right, let's do it one more time because that means you're gonna, let's, do we all love the church, right? Do you love the church of God? Amen? Amen. All right, let's, let's be a church that responds like that. That keeps me awake as well. Um, a friend of mine recently asked me, do you think our children will go to a church in the future? Do you really think the children will go to a church in the future? Well, he wasn't talking about the state of discipleship or whether our children or the next generation will be Christians, per se, but rather he was asking in light of the church hurt, church hypocrisy, church struggles with scandals and failures, and he was coupled with a lament, a proper lament at that, at the state of the church today. Do you think our children will go to church? Will the church of Christ survive this generation? Will they persevere until Christ returns, as he promised? Perhaps the biggest challenge we face as a church in America is a church, after all. But what about the rest of the world? Well, obviously, similar problems exist elsewhere in the world today as well. But also, there are pockets around the world where there are physical persecutions that threaten the survival of the church. Missionaries are under threat. The church faces many harms coming their way. Open Doors, a missions agency, estimated that 1,207 Christians a year die as martyrs. That's about 3.3 Christians a day. Gordon Conwell Seminary Center for Study of Global Christianity estimated that about 90,000 Christians 
including in those in war, die every year, 90,000. The question again is, will the Church of Christ persevere and survive? Not only of the threats internally as we struggle, but also externally with the forces that persecute and divide the church. Will the church of Christ persevere and last until Christ returns? Well, the simple answer is yes, isn't it? We believe in the scripture's teaching of perseverance of the saints. That simply means if you are in God's hands, he's got you. Remember the promise of Romans chapter 8? It says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or in threat with death? As the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. So don't be surprised, Christians. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, Paul writes, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen, church? Amen. Come on, I need a stronger amen than that. Amen? amen? You are His, isn't it? You are nothing apart from Him. And nothing, church, nothing internally, externally can separate us from the love of God, even our own failures. The forces out there in the world today, God's got you. If you're here this morning, there's a reason why. God brought you here. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? That it's not mere accidents, accident or by your choice alone that you're sitting here this morning. God brought you here. And I know many of us need to hear that this morning. Amen? Amen. And if we truly believe that Church of Christ is not just an institution or a building, if you really believe that we, us, you and I, are the body of Christ, the church of living God, that means we will persevere. Church of Christ will survive. The promise of Romans 8 is for the church. We are the promise holders. We hold on to the church's promise that God will persevere the church, not only persevere, but the church of Christ will thrive and church will continue to testify. Now, that does not mean in terms of power and influence, right? I know the election season is coming up, but let me tell you as your pastor, not on how to vote, but let me encourage you from the scripture not to be used by the false rhetoric to sway your thoughts. Don't let the force of the world fool you us into thinking the worldly influences is everything. Right? What we ought to see is what God is doing and how, how he is going to change and transform his world. Amen? Amen? So let's go back to today's text. And the question before us is, yes, the church of Christ will persevere because of God's promises. But how are we going to hold on to this promise? How are we going to hold on to this promise the church of Christ will persevere? Well, in today's text, the final chapter of 1 Timothy we find, uh, we find Paul's plea to Timothy one last time on the danger of the false teaching, 
false idolatry of wealth, and as always, his personal plea for Timothy to be faithful. And in these verses, what we find are the encouragement, the command Paul is giving to the church in how to persevere, how to stay faithful, and how we can persevere as a church of Christ. And what we see is he calls the church to persevere by loving one another and by loving our Lord, loving our God. First thing we see is that God um, calls the church to persevere by loving one another, loving one another. Each and every month, if you know or not, our church holds its leaders' meeting, where our leaders are get together to discuss many matters of the church, the needs, the prayer needs, the material needs, the ministries, the state of well-being of your church. This past Tuesday, I was reminded once again of the importance of these gatherings, because in these gatherings, what happens normally is we share scripture, we learn, we pray. Uh, one of our elders this past Tuesday shared a beautiful devotion on the importance of learning to love one another in this season from 1 John. And to follow that, one of our elders read a beautiful, heartfelt letter, an apology to those who are gathered there as we try to grow together as body of Christ. You know, some people often ask me as an interim pastor during this season, they ask, do you think Christ Central will survive this transition? I get that question asked a lot more than you think. All these changes we're going through, do you think we will, in fact, in fact survive through this? And you know what? Sometimes I do think about it. But when I look back at the meetings like we had this past Tuesday, I believe my answer is absolutely. Not because we got everything down or perfectly correct. But I think when we learn what it means to love one another like this elder exhorted us and how this other elder practiced in this letter, I believe the Church of Christ not only will persevere, but church will survive and thrive in the eyes of God. I believe that's the promise we hold on to. And that's what we find in the opening verses of chapter 6 today. We find one of the most controversial yet challenging verses. I'm sure you probably thought, like, are you serious, God? Like, what is going on here? It says, all slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will bring shame. They will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping others believe who are well-loved. And he says, teach these things, Timothy, as if to emphasize it. Encourage everyone to obey them. And you may think, hold up, pastor, hold up, right? It's like, is Paul promoting slavery here? It's like, I thought we were multi-ethnic. You know, we don't talk about stuff like that, right? So what is Paul trying to say here? Is he honoring or, you know, promoting slavery for the sake of honoring God? Is that what he's trying to say? In order to unpack this, we have to realize that there are different types of slaveries throughout the history. Um, there's more, but generally there are five types of slavery, they say. There's Hebrew servanthood, and that God provides provisions in case of the poor. In Leviticus, we see that you could become slave to be economically dependent on somebody else. We call this Hebrew servanthood. God does not want and promote it, but in case those things happen, it's provisions that are given in Leviticus 25. There's also what we call an indentured servanthood, and that was prevalent in colonial America. It was a way of lending yourself to come to the new lands. Many people that came over were not able to come on their own, 
So oftentimes there will be indentured servants selling themselves into the slavery to be able to come. Historians say about one-third or two-thirds of European immigrants were indentured servanthood during the colonial times. Then there's Roman slavery, as we find in this scripture. The history tells us that over one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves, which was roughly 50 million people at the time. Then there is African slave trade, the most inhumane, most disgusting form as we find. And let me read this quote for you by Frederick Douglass, a leader of the abolitionist movement in the 1800s to dispel any false notion that we thought this slavery was noble. Right? Hear this, what he says about his former slave master, Captain Anthony. He writes, he was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often been awakened at the dawn of the day by the most heart-rending shrieks of my own aunt of mine, whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip until she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayer from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. Again, I share this quote to remind us the horror of this slavery has absolutely no basis, absolutely no biblical basis to defend it. And there's today's form of slavery we find in human trafficking. Again, this does not have any basis either, especially of women and children for sexuality, economic gain, and simple exploitation. Again, no defense whatsoever for this kind of slavery. First of all, church, we have to remember the Bible does not absolutely condone any type of slavery there is, any form of it. Even the Hebrew servanthood was designed with a maximum protection and guidance to get the poor out of their state, especially for those who proclaim their faith in the Lord because at the heart of it, in slavery, you do not love others. There's no love there. How can you? That's why even in Hebrew servanthood, there's provisions, laws to protect those who are enslaved physically and also command from God to free them in Jubilee the year of Sabbath and reset. God does not absolutely condone any form of slavery in this. And as I wrestled with this church this week, I thought about this. The fact that I have to explain and parse this out to you all, the fact alone shows us how evil slavery is. Pure evil, right? Satanic evil, enslaving one another who are made in the image of God. Especially because our mind goes straight to African slave trade, which is most inhumane, to forcibly bring image makers in kidnapping, torturing, killing, exploiting. These practices does not belong in the scripture at all. There's no way to protect it, no way to excuse it. It is rightly to be condemned, and that's what we believe. Amen? So here in this text, what Paul is addressing here is not that type of slavery, but Roman slavery at that. But let me clarify again, saying that it's still wrong to have those kinds of slavery. But if one-third of the empire at the time was slaves based on the economic and social status, then in the church of Ephesus, where the standard for coming to the church, belonging to this congregation, is that you hear the good news and Jesus saves you, 
talk about unconditional grace, then you got many who are slave owners and slaves residing in the church together. So in that, Paul is addressing quite radically how to function and live together in this given society where one-third of the populations are slaves, perhaps even more so in the church as a result of people coming to know Christ. At the heart of this command is not condoning slavery, but a heart of love. What binds this gathering of Christ's followers together, what Paul is saying, is what it means to love one another and to honor God in the midst of it, to treat one another not as slaves, slaveholders, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that economic renewal, radical shift of the society is further addressed in the following verses when he says, Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote godly life or what it means to live together. And he talks a lot about what it means to now not squabble over difficult uh, wordings, but also not letting your mind be corrupt, being content with what God has given you and not pursue after money. In this, Paul, again, warns of the danger of seeking financial gain above loving and serving others. The false teaching Ephesus led to chorus and fight. And we have seen time and time again, rather than knowing, serving, sacrificing, often showing godliness that became just a way to become wealthy. Rather than sacrificing, giving themselves what, happened, what was happening with false teaching was they were using this false teaching to become more wealthy. And it wasn't just finances or material wealth that Paul was pointing at. A better comparison of pursuing this false teaching of the personal gain is found in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, where false teaching emphasizes not only the wealth, the material wealth, but personal growth and personal growth only. What Paul is saying is that's not the gospel. The gospel is not insular. It's not more of what you know, more of what you can present, more of getting for yourself. This is not the gospel that Jesus taught, and this is not the gospel that Paul is telling Timothy that we have entrusted to you. But Paul warns Timothy to warn the others of this is to reorient the church's focus on what they were called to do in the church, as we see in the book of Acts, as the people gather Remember the book of Acts, chapter 2? Quite contrary to the false teaching we find in 1 Timothy. Chapter 2 says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. The deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place, shared everything they had, they sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship to those who were being saved. You see, the, general, the, the church in Acts show what it means to radically love one another. I mean, what Paul is doing is calling, the Timothy, calling Timothy and church at Ephesus Back to the picture of what it means to be a truly a church. A beauty of the gospel at the heart of Christianity to follow Christ is to picture this radical love for one another that overflow in how we dealt with one another, not just racially, not just ethnically, but also socioeconomically and every aspect of their lives. Church, let me be absolutely clear on this. 
God's finances, God's economic system does not equal capitalism. Nor personal finances, nor gain. Right? Let me repeat that. Right? The gospel of Christ is not capitalism, and gospel of Christ is not democracy. Did you get that? Do you believe that? Or do you really think Christianity equals democracy and capitalism? That's so limiting. Why? Why do we always try to attempt to put, put God under Adam Smith? Right? As if God is not greater than Adam Smith or under Athens of men, Rome, Washington. Do you really believe God is greater than that? But also, God's finances economy does not promote socialism either. Right? So any other form of the government or economic system, period, nothing is greater than the gospel truth because our God is greater. Amen? Amen. Church, Christians, it is not making a political statement. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. Do not let this baseless quarrels cloud your view of what God is urging church to do in this sinful, fallen world. God's economy is not capitalistic, nor socialistic, nor Marxist. God's economy is sacrificial giving. God's economy is radical living, dying to one another type of living, loving like following the cross, serving other type of kind of economy. That's God's economy, according to Scripture. In this, we find God is calling the church, you and I, to persevere as a church, the bride of Christ, by what Jesus commands us to do, loving one another, sacrificially loving one another, to sacrifice, to give, to share, to radically live, so Jesus will be known and Jesus will be proclaimed. That is the gospel-centered living. That is the sole purpose of the church, so we could persevere until the end. So let me talk about this church. That means in the Church of Christ, we have to picture this, isn't it? Picture this. You know, it's estimated that only about 3 to 5% of churchgoers give financially on a regular basis. Post-pandemic world, we see a significant drop in church attendance. They say, if you come to church twice a month, you're a regular attender now. 50%. 50%, right? I know church attendance is not everything, but it does make us think about this for a little bit. On average, only 20% of the church volunteers to serve their time, right? We definitely have places to grow even as our church. Now, I'm not, and it's hard for a pastor to often talk about this because it makes us look like God needs your finances or time, or it seems like we have a dual motive, especially as a pastor, right? But let me be clear. We know God doesn't need your finances or time. But what God wants is you. Right? And I also, I hope you see that I'm not preaching what we see uh, in the world out there, but what we're trying to preach is what we see in the Scripture. Not from my own words or wants, but this is what it means to be a disciple. We see from the gospel truth, from the Scripture, this is a gospel issue. What I'm calling church, calling us, is not to say give more, sacrifice more, or do more. What I'm calling the church to do 
what Apostle Paul is telling Timothy to do in verse 2 when he says, teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Furthermore, in verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. Be ready to give. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. This is what Paul tells Timothy. God tells the church. To sum it up, Church of Christ, Christ Central Church, may we grow in love, in loving others. Not only to teach, to talk about this, but to model it, to demonstrate this to the watching world, especially as those who follow Christ, who proclaim to testify to the living God. Let's demonstrate this. We do this out of our transformed hearts, respond to God who draws this out of us. After all, this is what Christ does with us, doesn't he? He flips the script of every slavery imaginable when he came to us. The master becomes the servant in the gospel. And the master gives all he has, even his life, so that the slaves will become fellow heirs, fellow family members to join in. That's the love. That's the gospel. And he does this unconditionally when he calls us to follow him. Church, may we persevere until the end by loving one another. Amen? Second way that Paul tells the church to persevere is not only by loving one another, but by loving God, loving who God is. Um, it's a homecoming season for many in our church. Uh, I love watching a lot of, uh, seeing a lot of pictures of many of you are going to homecoming, especially students that are here today. And um, I see so much love of the parents, right? When their children are getting ready to go on the stands, there's some concern there too, I know. But there's so much love there. Uh, there's so much excitement there, so much uh, the joy. In some sense, it's a rite of passage for our teenagers that are gathering here. Um, and I think it's not only love because they're dressed up nice, right? Because they look nice that day, right? They seem to be listening and smiling that day, right? It's not because of that. But it's nice and it's, um, there's so much love that's there because, because this is their child. Because this is your parent's. You know, my mom used to tell me every time I went out, not just the homecoming, she would always remind me, no matter what you do, remember, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. The youth, teenagers that gather here, I want to encourage you all. Remember who you are. You are loved. You are our beloved sons and daughters, not only of your parents, but of Christ Central Church not only by your parents, not only by your youth group leaders, but the community that's gathered here. Your church loves you, so remember who you are in this season. No matter what the world says of the standards to be loved, we want to remind you that you're simply loved because who you are. Parents, I want to encourage you to remind your children of this every day. This is a parenting tip from Apostle Paul. Because that's what we see here. In latter verses of chapter 6, Apostle Paul tells Timothy and reminds him to love God by reminding him of who he is. Do you know that? 
Apostle Paul tells his young pastor Timothy to love God by reminding him of who he is in Christ. He does three things, reminding Timothy of who he is in Christ, reminding Timothy of the hope he has in Christ, reminding Timothy of the grace that allows him to do this in Christ. First thing we see is Paul reminds Timothy of who he is in Christ in verse 11. It says, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. Man of God is a common term found in the Old Testament. Over 60 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is used to refer to prophets like Elijah, Elisha, and King David. But this is the only time it occurs in the New Testament, the man of God here, referring to someone. This is not indicating a new call or Paul is saying that you're in light on those prophets, but rather referring to the common character trait and the sayings that Timothy may be familiar with in his lifetime. What Paul is telling Timothy here is a call placed upon his life to be a man of God, to be faithful, to be follower of his Savior. And immediately following these verses, Paul writes, because you are a man of God. So now, because God places this call upon your life, equips you, empowers you to be a man of God, he says, pursue righteousness. Pursue godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. What these verses highlight is the character trait of the godliness of an elder ought to display. The fruit of the spirit of those who are in Christ. Not only is he called to pursue this, but this is who he's meant to be. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, a pastor, an elder, Paul's disciple, grandson of Lois, son of Eunice, but most importantly, Christ follower, Christian, love the Lord your God as you are called to be. Second thing that Paul reminds Timothy is his hope in Christ. In verse 13, he says, And I charge you before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate that you obey this command without wavering, that no one can find, you, find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at the just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings, Lord of all lords. He alone can never die. He lives in life so brilliantly and that no human can approach him. No human eyes has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. Here in reading Timothy of the path of Christ, on which he testified boldly in front of Pontius Pilate, Paul saying, follow after Christ. Be like Christ in your walk, so he can be blameless, which is noted New Testament goal for many who are following Christ. But now Paul says, not only follow after him because that's what you're called to be, this is who you are meant to be, but he says the hope that you have is not only that you follow after him, but he will reveal himself to you. And you hold on to that promise of the second coming of Christ that is to come. Hold on to that goal, the reward, our hope. Love for God will result in love from the Lord. That's what it means to be, to be in love with the Lord, to wait for the coming of Christ. That's what you're meant to be. And don't you love this? As Paul is teaching Timothy this, he's saying, like, not only love the Lord, remember the hope that you have. And Paul says, wait, 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 wait. I got to worship the Lord. And that's why he goes burst out in worship by saying, for at the right time, Christ will be revealed. And I see a glimpse of discipleship here. Not only is Paul telling Timothy what to do, but as he's teaching Timothy what to do, he, can help but him, he cannot help but himself 
burst out in worship. He not only demonstrates, teaches what it means to follow Christ, but he demonstrates what it means to follow Christ in his way. And third and finally, Paul encourages Timothy to love God by reminding of the grace that enables him now to be able to love God. Not only tells him to love God by reminding of who he is, not only tells him to love God by telling him the hope that he has that's coming, but he says, well, grace of God will enable you to love God. In verse 20, he says, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussion with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from this faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. You know what does it mean by guard what God has entrusted to you? Or in another translation, it could be translated as keep the deposit or guard the deposit, as they say. I love this quote by St. Leo, Pope in the 5th century, wrote about this very particular phrase, keep the deposit in verse 20. He writes this, and I'm going to change the D to you to make it easier for us to understand. What it meant by the deposit, that which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you, that which you has not have received, not that which you have devised, a thing not a wit, but of learning, not a private assumption, but a public tradition, a thing brought to you, not brought forth of you, wherein you must not be an author, but a keeper, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. In other words, it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is God's grace. Keep that deposit. And as if Timothy might forget, one last time, Timothy writes Paul, may God's grace who entrusted this to you be with you, all the church of Christ. Church, I believe that's how we love the Lord. By knowing he made you who you are and that he saves you out of the depth of your sin that you can love him. By remembering that your ultimate hope is in Christ who will come back to take his bride back, the church, that his promises that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church that he builds, the hope is now that you can now love him because his promise is in your life. And as a final reminder, because quite often you can't on your own to be able to love the Lord, his grace, God's grace, enables you now to love him back. He draws out that confession of sin by grace and mercy, and his grace demonstrated on the cross now draws you closer to him in response to love. And that's how the church of Christ will persevere, by the grace of God. Do you believe that, church? As he draws out your love for him, as he holds on to you with the grace of the Lord, you and I will persevere until Christ returns. That's the promise we find in 1 Timothy. You know, I love doing weddings, right? I love officiating weddings. I'm going to be doing another wedding in about two or three weeks now. And uh, I love when people come and say, can you marry us? Um, and I love our marriage ministry because I could say, go get counseling first because you need it, right? Um, we don't take doing weddings lightly here at Christ Central Church. We really don't. 
And I love doing weddings because as my previous pastor used to teach me, uh, doing a marriage is like doing a church plant. Right? You plant the church because the scripture describes marriage uh, to picture the church. Not only, not the way, not only way, but one of the ways to picture the church. Um, now, you and I both know, even if you're not married, uh, by watching our parents, even those are of our mentors, our community group members, even watching the media. Isn't that crazy? Our culture even tells us this, that marriage takes a lot of work. Right? I used to love what my pastor used to say. But he would get up and he's officiating the wedding and he would tell the couples that are gathered there, I pray and wish that today is like the worst day of your marriage. And the couples look stunned, right? They spend so much money on this, right? They're like, I, I don't know how much I spent on this. This venue, the overpriced food we're going to eat in a little bit. So much money, right? But the pastor's heart was that today is the worst day because the rest of the days will get better and better and better, right? But we know that's hard, isn't it? We know it takes a lot of work. Right? Oftentimes, we think we're alike. That's why you often get married. Like we have the same values. We are so alike, but you find that you're not. You know? Um, like one time, I thought my wife and I, we were like just same people. People often say, you guys look alike, you act like, all this stuff. When we found out our personalities, we're like opposite ends. Right? How we grew up, opposite ends. Right? The values we hold at times, opposite ends. Only sometimes few things. We realize, man, in order for us to persevere in our marriage, it can take a lot of work. Meaning I need to listen, lean in, learn to grow. As we often say in the marriage counseling and mentorship in our marriage ministry, they'll tell you two sinners coming together to live together, explosion of sin, right? Overflowing of generation of sin you bring to your table, they will bring the generation of sin. Now the question is, are you going to work at it? We all know this. Even the popular media tells us this. The marriage takes a lot of work. You know, church is just like that as well. Not only two sinners, multiple sinners, generational sinners coming together in the body of Christ. Hoping, thinking, Perhaps we could gather here, find a home here. And so often, we look fondly back at the first day we walk into church building. Because you walk in with lots of hopes, right? Finally, this is a place where I find my hope. Maybe this is a place where I'll be accepted. And that's all right. You should look for those things. And we often realize church is a full of broken place. And we often find our discouragement in it. But if you really believe the gospel of Christ calls us to persevere, not by perfectly fitting with one another right away, but learning what it means to love one another, as marriage often requires us to do, then we have hope. Ultimately, the marriage, what makes marriage work is oftentimes beyond you. Not that you're lost but the supernatural way you need to learn to sacrifice, to honor, to respect, to break down the patterns of sin, you need Christ. A successful marriage that perseveres, the last, as we say, requires three people. You, your spouse, and Jesus, the Savior, who will save you. Church, that's the same with the church. We need to learn to love one another, to grow in loving more and more each and every day, 
so that the first day you walk in is the worst day. You learn what it means to persevere together. But ultimately, we need to learn to love God together as we're loved by Him. The church of Christ will persevere, will last forever until Christ returns. How? By having Christ at the center. Well, look at that, church. That's our name. Christ Central Church. Let's live up to our name by God's grace, shall we? Let's pray. So let's pray for that. Let's live up to who we are called to be, putting Christ at the center, loving God and loving others. Father, that's our prayer, Lord. As your people, as we gather uh, with brokenness all around, with expectations, church hurt all around, um, confusions all around, but we thank you that we could come and be saved by grace, saved to serve, not of our own. It is your gift of God that no one can boast. May we hold on to this promise of God until you return so the church of Christ will continue to testify to the grace of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.